How do we raise emotionally mature boys? That's a great question. As a father of an eight-year-old boy myself, I often ask myself that question or ones very similar to it. Like, am I doing the right thing or am I doing this the right way? Am I raising my son the way that he should be raised? And I think there's a lot of times where we get societal pressures to raise our boys in a certain way. And if you're a dad who's struggling to connect with his son and you're struggling whether you're handling things the right way or not, the truth is there are so many stereotypes out there about raising boys that we will often fall into a rut as fathers where we will just do things they were like they were when we grew up or we will completely distance ourselves and lose that meaningful connection with our sons. But here's the good news. Dads can make a difference in the lives of their sons when you learn to accept that boys don't always match the image that society has come to expect. And that's okay. And I'm talking about the image of proper behavior and success in school and how to navigate explosive rough and tumble play. We're going to dive into all of that today on this episode of the Dad's Making a Difference podcast. Today, I have the conversation with Dr. Michael Thompson. He is a behavioral expert when it comes to boys. He is a consultant, author, and psychologist specializing in children and families. He's the author of many books, but two in particular that I want to dive into today in our conversation. First, he co-authored the book, Raising Cain, Protecting the Emotional Life of Boys. And he's the author of Speaking of Boys, Answers to the Most Asked Questions About Raising Sons. Excited to dive into this conversation with Dr. Michael Thompson on this episode of the Dads Making a Difference podcast. You are listening to the Dads Making a Difference podcast, the number one podcast for men driven to live a life of significance. Men who want to make a difference in the lives of their families, in their business, and in the world around them. My name is Cam Hall, founder of Fight the Dabot and leader of the Dads Making a Difference mastermind. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now, let's dive in. Dr. Michael Thompson, welcome to the Dads Making a Difference podcast. It's an honor to have you on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Cam. And call me Michael from here on, okay? Absolutely. Will do. You know, I appreciate Michael, the respect, but let's make it informal. Okay. Well, well, Michael, like I said, I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I'm just so enthralled with your work and your research that you've done as a dad of a young boy of eight turning nine. And based on my experience in education and working with youth and boys of all ages. And I'm really eager to dive in today. But yep. uh, I had mentioned in our introduction, uh, your work in really raising boys, and your research in those areas and the books that you've, you've written. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what got you in your story? You know, you've been doing this for a long time, what got you to this point? And what really inspired you to start uh, this life of research? Working in schools and boys in trouble. Mm -hmm. I wrote my PhD dissertation on eating disorders in girls. Okay. Um, I, I, I was raised in, a, in my graduate school years in a, a kind of a feminist environment. I was very concerned about the ways in which girls were being asked to distort their bodies and their lives uh, around weight and thinness. 
And so I wrote my dissertation on anorexic-like behaviors in otherwise normally functioning girls. And if you had told me back then that I would become a boy expert, I would have thought, what? Are you, are you kidding me? Um, and what happened was I began consulting to schools. Okay. And in schools, um, if you're a psychologist or any kind of mental health professional or learning specialist, you're going to see way more boys than girls. And if you're in a position as I was consulting with teachers, mm-hmm. you're going to have many more teachers frustrated with boys than they are frustrated with girls. And you're going to have many more boys going. You're nodding because you know this is absolutely. I know, true. I know right? this and, is absolutely true. Yeah. And there are just many more boys going to the principal's office. So there are many more boys getting in trouble for their language and their physicality, and they're bullying as if girls didn't bully. They do, yeah. Yeah, yes. but boys uh, get into physical altercations, and so the discipline comes down, bam, on them. And you, you don't have to be in schools very long to realize. The schools are a pretty bad fit for boys and boys are a pretty bad fit for schools yep. and that there are a lot of collisions, a lot of friction and, and sometimes in the lives of some boys, just nonstop trouble. Yeah. And as a psychologist consulting to schools, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't not see that boys were having the problem in school. The T everybody in the society was talking about gender equity and how do we get, equal pay for women and i thought yeah but all these boys think school's a jail mm-hmm. and and it pretty much is for them yeah it is a struggle i know uh, you you see me nodding because you know my context i've been an educator or in education for this is year 17 and i right. elementary school middle school high school all levels and what you are describing is exactly what i've seen and i compare it to that toddler toy that's the red and blue ball with the shapes cut into it and you're trying to put the right shape into to the ball through the right hole the system is not built for boys and it's like their entire schooling career they're just heading up against this wall that won't budge you're trying to put the shape in the wrong spot and because they're doing that people are keep correcting them no you're not doing this right you're not doing this right and I have to tell you, to be honest, I have been guilty of that at times in my career, times where frustration has overtaken, you know, the heart or the actual acknowledgement of that this is hard for boys. Why do you think it is, uh, let's stay on the education piece for a little bit, but why do you think it is that the system is so hard for our boys to uh, fit into? And it's such a hard way to say it that way, because I don't believe in that, like the system should reflect the kids that we have, but we don't live in that world. So from a a boy's point of view, what is school about? It's about sitting down and listening to people and doing things that are low priority for a boy. Right. They really are. (laughs) I was interviewing a a, a six-year-old boy when I was writing Raising Cain at Dan Kinlan. And and the six-year-old boy said to me, you can't do anything in kindergarten. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't do anything? He said, you can't get on the tables. You can't wrestle. You can't do anything. Yeah. This, this is terrible. <laughs> this is no fun. I can't climb on anything or jump off anything risky. Right. <laughs> so if, if it, look, uh, if you were giving tens of thousands of tests to girls to get all of psychological profile of girls, it would be a girl bell-shaped curve. Right. 
And if you gave all the tens of thousands of tests to boys, it would be a boy's bell-shaped curve. And if you superimpose one on the other, they're 90% overlapping. Mm. Kids are much more human than they are gendered. Their need for love and guidance and good teaching and challenge is is the same. That's why co-education is not nuts. And it's why I object to an otherwise lovely man like Michael Gurian, who wrote The Wonder Boys. He wrote another book called Boys and girls learn differently. He talks mm. about the boy brain and the girl brain. And I think that's scientific rubbish. The, 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 na- the brains are 90% overlapping. Wow. But let's talk about what those 10% of differences are. Absolutely. And it's by school age, three quarters of the boys in the class are more physically active than any girl. So it's not overlapping. They're only a quarter of the boys who are like the girls mm-hmm. and, and, and the girls on that end are a little bit rugged and they kind of prefer boy play, but for the teachers uh, where it's sitting and focusing and reading things on a page and trying to keep the classroom quiet because try as we might to work with teachers, they tend to think that listening, I mean, a quiet classroom and good listening is the key to learning. Uh That is not necessarily the case. Active learning and creative learning and uh, project-based learning isn't always quiet. But it. many people go into education are um, themselves very good students for whom the school setting worked very well. And that's true of almost all elementary teachers. Products of the system. Uh, Yeah, 85, 90% of women. Mm -hmm. And so they were good at this stuff and they don't mean to be mean to boys. It's just that boys are more disruptive in their classrooms. And I've witnessed or observed in my experience, you know, elementary school, I saw exactly what you're, you're describing. Uh, and I have a son who is in grade three right now, who over the last couple of years was the, was the kid who said, oh, yeah, he's very, uh, he's very active. <laughs> he moves around. He moves around a lot. I'm like, yeah, let the kid stand at his desk. Give him a kick band on the bottom of his chair. Give like, let him fidget. Let him move. Let him interact. Oh, yeah, he's very distracted. He gets up, but he's a good helper. Like we'll be sitting in the front of the classroom and it'll be quiet time. And Braylon will just stand up, walk, push all the chairs in, put in all the drawers to make sure. And then he'll come sit back down. And in my brain, I'm like, what's wrong with that? He's listening. He can hear you. But like, this is not his jam. Like the system is not built for him. And then you get older kids where I'm at now, high schools, where we walk this fine line between engagement and learning and compliance. And I think for a long time, our boys struggle with the idea of compliance and our teachers struggle with the idea of compliance. It looks very different for the two of them, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And look, there's always a challenge with children of any age to make what you're teaching them relevant because they're interested in their friends. They're interested in their sports. They're interested in their devices. um, And it's hard to get their attention, Um, but it's just harder for boys. And, and, and so uh, you know, three quarters of, uh, of school suspensions land on boys, three quarters of expulsions land on boys, and, and you're going to have um, more boys in LD classes. And some of them are there because the boy brain is more variable. Mm. 
than the girl brain. Um, the, the girl brain tends to be in total. There's a, sure there's a range of the girl brain, yeah. but it, it's, it's not as wide a range. So you've got more boys who are um, diagnosed autistic. You have three to four times more boys defined uh, diagnosed as ADHD. So you're going to get, you've got more neurodiversity in boys than in girls. And neurodiversity is a challenge to the classroom. Any classroom, any teacher. And look, Cam, I started out as a public school teacher in New Hampshire. Yeah. I had a seventh grade homeroom. And it's impossible to get through a week without wishing the boys were just a little like the girls, right? Yeah. If, if, if they would only sit longer, if they were only quieter, yeah. it would be easier to run a classroom. It's impossible not to wish. But one of the things about uh, my now 29 years at consulting uh, to an all-boys school, grade 7 through 12, now it's private school, privileged kids. But because you're not comparing the boys to girl behavior, you're just comparing boys to each other. Yeah. And it, it, you, you recalibrate what you're expecting. I was once in a boys school in Toronto and I was in a fifth grade, I was following a fifth grade class. This was from my book, The Pressured Child. I was following a fifth grade class of these boys and they were doing a research project um, with a, a, a technology class. And they had a rubric for doing research online and they were going online and finding out facts for their research projects. And the boys were in pairs and they were very nicely two chairs in front of every computer screen. And the boys were paired up and stuff. Like, none of the boys were sitting and they were all uh, talking to each other, shouting at the screens. I found it. I found it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the class, I said to the woman teacher, I said, uh, gee, you have a very high tolerance for noise. And she said, really? I thought it was kind of quiet today. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, you've been in an all-boys school so long, you no longer know what's reasonable, right? Yeah. Because it wasn't quiet yeah. by a co-ed school standard. Right. But because it was a boys' school, she was she'd adapted to the, the kind of boys shouting and a little bit of the boy exhibitionism, which can be quite problematic mm -hmm. in a co-ed classroom. Exactly. Um, it's amazing. Context is key, right? Yes. Context is key yeah. when you look at yeah, it. You, you look at your research and you are a boy expert, you know, in how boys develop and how to connect with them. You know, in the book you co-authored, uh, Raising Cain, you, you realize that, you know, the emotional lives of boys are important. And yes. I think what, you know, guys are listening to this right now and we've talked about education. I want to shift to, to being a father and being a dad. Yep. Uh, why is it important for dads to be aware and be involved in the emotional development and aspect of their children's lives, their boys' lives? Because most fathers have gotten um, a narrow definition of what it is to be masculine. Mm -hmm. And most fathers themselves um, well, there was one psychologist who said being raised male in the United States is traumatic. And I, I, I don't accept that. I think that's, uh, 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 hyperbolic, but you can't be raised, uh, as a boy in this society without suppressing your feelings, um, denying some of your feelings and aspiring to something that most of us aren't, right. which is 
strong and tough all the time and unafraid and courageous, right? right. And assertive and aggressive. Yeah. I was an anxious little boy and a very bookish little boy. And and I wasn't all those things that that you were supposed to be. And I it turns out looking back, um, I didn't understand it at the time, but team sports made me incredibly anxious. Mm. I, I, I'm actually not um, a, a, an uncoordinated person. And I uh, love, love, love running, biking, canoeing, kayaking, swimming, right? Yeah. I love solo sports. Put me on a basketball court as a 10-year-old. I was miserable. I was yeah. thinking, Jesus, I'm going to screw up. The other boys are going to hate me. Don't give me the ball. I'm going to throw up a clunker. And all of the requirements of being a sporty boy mm-hmm. made me miserable. Yeah. But I thought all the other boys were having a great time. And it wasn't until I became a psychologist uh, or actually a teacher who became very interested in why boys struggle so much in school was what propelled me to go and retrain as a psychologist. It wasn't until I got boys to talk about what it was really like for them inside. Mm. Um, so a dad has to know you don't you don't get a standard issue boy. When your boy's born, he's he's got all the equipment, but yeah. you don't know whether he's gonna like the and fit the image of masculinity and 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 by the way dad maybe you didn't fit that it that well yourself but now you think your son should or you're afraid if he doesn't fit in he's going to be teased or bullied if he's not strong and tough so dad say stupid things like a boy reports that somebody's picking on him in school and dad say well just hit him well, hell, if you have a son who's going to hit somebody, he probably would have hit somebody already. Yeah. But most dads don't have a, a fourth grade son who wants to punch somebody. Yeah. It's against the rules. They're going to get him in trouble. And besides, they don't know if that kid's going to come punch back and pound him. They're realistically afraid. And and so you, this this kind of advice, just hit him. Mm-hmm. Uh, really? I don't think so. It's a more complicated story. So a father needs to know, and this is the subtitle of uh, our book, Raising Cain, was protecting the emotional life of boys. Mm -hmm. What a father has to say is, well, son, how are you going to handle that? That sounds tough. What do you think you can do? How do other boys handle that kid? Right? Yeah. And maybe it's bullying. Maybe it's not. But you don't want to give a simple answer that somehow fits in with this stereotype of masculinity because that may not work for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Because boys often face the societal pressure to conform to these rigid gender stereotypes. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. How can fathers challenge these stereotypes and support their sons in pursuing a diverse range of interests or activities uh, irrespective of traditional gender roles, because I believe what you were pointing to is the team sports versus the individual sports versus the, right. you, you speak of uh, rough and tumble play versus being right. a little bit more introverted. How can, how can fathers challenge these uh, stereotypes and encourage their boys and support their boys in being engaged in different activities than maybe the dad is used to? Well, by being honest, hmm. 
by saying, this, this is the kind of man I am. This is the kind of boy I was. And I understand not all boys are like that. Mm. And you may not be like that. We have to figure out what works for you. Um, so what you want to do is model it. But I think most fathers think, and this is because we're un, in the grip of, of the stereotype of masculinity, which is we're always strong. We're always tough. We always have the answers. Yeah. And of course, that's bull. You know what? Yeah. yeah. And uh, we're not always strong and we're often scared. And so if a father says to his son, um, that's scary. I get that I would have been scared when I was your age. Took mm -hmm. me a long time to not be scared in that situation. Just a father's honesty about his own emotions. Because, you know, I had a 13-year-old boy once in this private school where I work. And, he, and he's, uh, he was an eighth grader. And he said, you know, my dad is the CEO of a company that employs 300 people. And I can't even sit and do my homework for 20 minutes. Yeah. And he was saying, my father's here. Yeah. I'm here. I don't know how you hell you get from here to there. It looks impossible to me. Right. So one of the things we do at my boys' school is we have an eighth grade um, men's breakfast. And it's eighth grade boys and their fathers or grandfathers or a guardian. Or sometimes if a boy has a complicated family situation, he wants to invite a teacher or a coach. He invites him to that men's breakfast but we have all the men talk about what they were like in eighth grade hmm. and whether they were good at school whether they got in trouble what they were afraid of and it's really unfamiliar for the fathers it's tables of eight four dads and four boys and the fathers all want to give a lecture yeah. about how to be a good eighth grader and i have to tell the dads this is not lecture time fathers hmm. Yeah. You don't get to do your favorite thing, which is teaching your sons about life. <laughs> yeah. we, we want you to talk about what your life was like in eighth grade. Yeah. And I push them. That's why that's my role at that breakfast. But I, I tell them, be honest about your life. Be honest. If you were a clueless eighth grader, you were a frightened eighth grader. If you were late to puberty and you were constantly worried about it because you were a little guy, and you didn't hear all of your classmates look bigger and stronger than you because they were, yeah. right? Right. Uh, be honest about that. It's so hard. It's so hard for dads to actually cop to what they felt when they were boys because now they are pretty, pretty confident men, you know? Yeah. And it's not a place you want to revisit, actually. <laughs> no, it's not. It's it's interesting that you say that. Get out of the teaching role with your boys, because I'll often find myself asking my son questions. And I want to dive into questioning for a moment, but asking my son questions. And he'll respond. And instead of just letting him take ownership over that response and just telling me what what's going on, I didn't quickly turn into like the father role model coach mode. And I just, Oh yeah, that's great. Well, have you tried this or have you done this? And you should do this. I have to catch myself. I do have to catch myself on that. All of us do. Yeah. All of us do. We love to teach our kids. We think it's going to, we can transfer the wisdom to them, but you know, it's teenage girls who stop their fathers from doing this. Mm. Dad, just listen. 
Don't problem solve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but sons boys, boys tend not to set their father straight. They mm. just kind of fall silent and go inside. And then the father thinks, why doesn't my son talk to me? And he's not hearing that he's kind of giving a little sermonette. And the son has kind of gotten, you know, two sentences of a sermonette from your dad and you're, you know where it's headed and no. you, it just wears you out right there. Yeah. So, how, okay. I'm going to say, how do we, but Michael, I'm really asking, how do I, <laughs> how do we reframe our questioning and our conversations with our boys so that we are not doing that to them? Because that's really doing it to them, not having a conversation with them. So um, in the last chapter of Raising Cain, sort of my foundational book, I've written 10 books, but that was the big one. And and the one I broke new ground. And I wrote it with Dan Kinlan, who was a professor at the Harvard School of Public Health, a researcher, which I'm not, I'm a clinician. And Dan said, you're the advice giver guy. You write the last chapter. And, and, and we wrote suggestions for raising a boy uh, in, as a more emotionally literate uh, person. And the the advice I gave then 24 years ago, I still give, which is use your son as a consultant on his own life. Mm. Ask him questions that only he can answer. So let me give you an example. If I say to you, Cam, Cam, um, do you like your math teacher, Mr. Andrews, better than last year's math teacher, Ms. Bailey? Mm. That would be the only but question I could answer. There's only one person on earth who can answer that question. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, and if I say, all right, so what if I want to say it another way? I say, I, 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 I'm noticing you, you're more excited about math. Is it the difference between your teachers? Hmm. But if you're a dad and you can name the teachers, you have your son's attention. Hmm. But what dads traditionally do is, how are things going in math? Oh, Yeah. I'm thinking about right. my I'm thinking about my marks right now. Yeah. Right. Of course. The moment your father says, How are things going, Matt? You know, I'm supposed to live up to my father. My father's benchmarking me. He's judging me. He's measuring me. That closed down a conversation. But if you use your son as a consultant on his own life and you ask questions that only he can answer, he will be he'll, he'll hear it. Yeah. And, and he's more inclined to answer. You might have to ask two or three questions that way. But if you want kids to talk, you have to give them respect of no, of acknowledging in the way you ask the question that no one has, no one on earth, including the father, has the information that this 10-year-old boy has, this 12-year-old boy has, this 14-year-old boy has. Hey guys, I wanted to take a moment and talk about our community of DMD brothers in the DMD mastermind. We are men who help each other to stay focused and intentional in our pursuits of personal, professional, physical, financial, emotional, and spiritual growth. We are a community of men who bring courage, wisdom, and transparency to unfiltered conversations that challenge us to be more impactful men, to be dad's making a difference. We do this through our online and in-person events where men come together to speak into each other's lives and then turn around and do the deep work to create change in their families, in their businesses, and in the community around them. 
If you are wondering if this community might be right for you, you can find more information on the DMD Mastermind, and you can also book a call directly with me at dmdmastermind.com. Now, let's get back to our show. Well, let's talk about the 12, 14, 16, 18, you know, okay, as a, yeah, you know yeah. what a time that is, you know, I've, I've noticed, you know, I have an elementary age son, but I've worked yeah. with a lot of teenagers and preteens into teenagers. And they are so different from the beginning of one year to the next. And conversation is not, it's not a strong point, you know, it, it, it isn't. And it's hard to navigate some of those conversations. So for the dads who are listening, who have teenage sons, does right. that strategy of make, you know, putting them as the expert in that conversation, is that still a strategy that works even through those teenage years? Not if you're expecting it will produce uh, paragraphs of, uh, of replies. Hmm. A 14 year old boy once, I, I remember the kids who set me straight. And a 14 year old boy said to me once, Dr. Thompson, there's no point in talking to my mother. And I said, why? He said, no matter how much I talk, she's always disappointed I don't say more. Oh, I can't say enough. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? So I learned when I went from a co-ed school where girls love to come and talk to the psychologist, love to come back for a second meeting. I learned that if I was going to be in a boys' school, I better learn to ask a lot of yes-no questions. Hmm. And I now do it reflexively. I sit down with a 12-year-old boy and I'm asking him yes-no questions so that he can just nod. Yes, no, nod, go like this, shrug. And we're having a conversation. I'm providing all the verbiage. But I'm never disappointed that he doesn't talk more. Yeah. Never. Because if he's saying, if he's telling me his truth by saying yes or no. So you got to train yourself. Uh, and this is very difficult for moms. For dads, they have a different problem. Moms are always asking emotion-laden, open-ended questions. Cam, how are you? Yeah, how do you feel? Right, what's the answer to that, Cam? You know that. Okay. Every man knows Fine. It. Fine, right? Yeah, stop, fine. This converse, stop this conversation <laughs> in its tracks. Yeah. Where is this headed? Where is this woman going to want to take me, right? Yeah, or what it's do you think? a vulnerable yeah. place yeah. where I'm going to feel weak. Dads stop conversations in the ways that you've already described by turning it into a lecture, by trying to teach, by trying to coach. Mm -hmm. They get into problem solving. So you have to be, you have to come at kids with inquiry. You have to be satisfied with yes, no questions. You have to ask a follow-up question that's answerable with another yes, no. Mm -hmm. And if your son is getting more remote, you say, son, um, am I drilling down too much here? Is this, are you, are you feeling on the hot seat? Yeah. Yes, Dad. Okay, well, then will you answer one more question? You negotiate, right? Okay. If yeah. you haven't asked the crucial question, you say, can I get permission from you to ask one more question? And then only ask one more question. Don't yeah. violate the negotiation. <laughs> yeah, that's good. For the dads who you know, reach out and they're, I've had dads reach out to me. They're just having difficulties bonding with their sons, like bonding. Right. They'll say bonding with their kids, but it gets into like a lot of conversations about sons. That's why I'm so excited to have you here today is because yeah. like, I don't know how to bond with my son. Like, 
maybe they've had different interests. Maybe it's a dad who's been into, you brought up the sports example, a dad who played team sports growing up. And this was a raw, raw thing. And his son just isn't into that. He's into like the Minecraft and the among us and the video game type thing. Like how do men build strong emotional relationships with their sons? Well, you start early and you started by doing rituals with your son. Hmm. So I, I, I had a father who told me that his three, three and a half year old, Son always would wake him in the morning, and if someone his father would get up and go in the bathroom, and they would get and they would cross swords in the <laughs> toilet. Right? That was that was the three and a half year old's idea of a really good time with his dad. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you can see that, right? I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that may not be to your taste, but what you want to develop with your child is rituals. And the ritual doesn't have to be words. And it's not uh, necessarily a digging into his psyche conversation. It's a thing that the two of you do that works for both of you to make him feel like uh, uh, a better boy, a strong boy, a lovable boy. And it makes you feel like a confident, lovable father. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. For my dad, it was, um, my dad loved making pancakes. And he was an architect and an artist, and he laid, made all kinds of shapes. And making batter with him, watching him make shapes out of it, and cook, cooking different animals. I was a little boy then. It was very vivid. Later on, my father gardened. Mm. My father was not a team playing athlete mm. was not something he expected of me. It's not something we shared in any case I was raised in Manhattan. So they just, so yeah. it's not that easy to be out on the fields and met, you know, um, but he gardened and we had a little brownstone in the back. He, 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 we planted bulbs and, and we garden. I'm still gardening. I've been, I was gardening this morning camp. Yeah. Right. Yeah. My father's influence on me. My father loved fishing. My father loved canoeing and he took me and you don't have to talk to your son about why you love canoeing. He can just see it. You love canoeing. Yeah. I could see that my father loved that. And because he loved it, I wanted to love it too. So you do activities together, but if you're trying to sell um, your son on rooting for the green Bay Packers, and he's obviously bored watching it on TV Find something else to do. You're not making the sale. Um, watch him. Watch what he gets excited about. If he's interested in video games and you aren't, jolly well, ask him to teach you about them yeah. and sit and watch. My son loved video games. I found them extremely boring. He was so grateful when I sat and watched him play and he showed me why he liked the game so much. And, and he would talk to me about why he loved the graphics so much. Yeah. I thought, really? But my son was headed for art school. Mm. Right. I didn't know that. I didn't share that with him. Yeah. But he loved the graphics and he loved teaching me about what he saw. So I had to try and be curious about that, even though I found the games boring. Yeah. And I'm sure he sensed that. I didn't want to play them a ton, right? Yeah. But I was curious. Yeah, we had a you and I were able to have a conversation late last month setting up this interview. 
And one of the things that you brought up in that conversation challenged me over the last, you know, four to five weeks of making my son the expert and the video games. I asked you about video games because he's into this and I've never been into it. And he has been blown away when I was like, he likes Minecraft and Among Us and this like snowboarding game on the iPad. I don't know. And I just say, hey, Bray. Do you want to show dad how to play this game for about, we have about 20 minutes. You want to show me how to play one? It gives us our like time for screen time, but it also is, he's like, yeah. And so then, and he is talking nonstop that entire time and he's teaching me how to play it. And it's been cool. And he, now he's, now he's like, this is something we should do every Thursday. You know, like he's he's, he's nine and he's his dad's teacher. Yeah. And he wants to, he wants it to be a weekly event. Good for him. That's exactly, Kevin, that's exactly what I mean hmm. by creating a ritual. Yeah. Cool. You know, for the dads who might be facing something tough right now, and we want to navigate a conversation with our sons, regardless of the age, um, maybe it's a, a conversation over discipline or something, a choice that they've made. How do we enter into that while taking into consideration their emotional health? Uh, discipline, make it short and sweet and definitive, hmm. right? right. Um, we're big and we have a, we can unwittingly belittle kids. We can humiliate them. Mm-hmm. We can really denigrate them in a hurry. Mm-hmm. So say it's a mistake. Got to have a response to this because mm-hmm. uh, this, this was really dumb and this is what it's going to be. And, and does the prisoner have anything to say? <laughs> <laughs> does, yeah. I, yeah. Is, is there any words that can be used against you? No. <laughs> yeah. So I, I make it succinct. Don't uh, don't on, on layers of moral preaching. It's it's done. Um, I I had a boy at my school once at graduation. He he did an imitation of the Dean yeah. and he did an imitation of himself. We, we have a punishment at high school, which is for kids who really break the rules or tick us off. We have, we, we have an hour, but we're at day school and an hours on Saturday morning. Okay. The kids hate, Oh, they hate it. Like hell, they got to come back to school on a Saturday. Their parents hate it. Everybody hates an hour. Yeah. And this boy was now 18 was imitating himself as a ninth grader talking to the dean of the upper school. And he was giving all these excuses and evasions and telling stories and everything. And then he'd jump and play the director of the upper school, the dean, who said nothing, just looked at him. (laughs) Just said nothing, looked at him. And after the kid got through, you know, 12 evasions and five excuses, he jumped back and played the role of the dean. And this is what the dean said. Nice try. That's an hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> short and succinct yeah nice try that's an hour right yeah, yeah. that's good <laughs> you know parenting is an ongoing journey and and mistakes are inevitable i i've made mistakes i'm sure every guy listening to this Me and yourself too. have made Still mistakes. Making them. yeah what what advice do you have for dads who may feel uncertain or overwhelmed at times and how can they bounce back from challenges and continue to make a positive impact on their son's lives? Learn to apologize to your kids. Hmm. When you said something mean or stupid, 
uh, when you haven't thought something through. That's if you've made a mistake. Mm. Learn to apologize. You don't have to throw yourself on the floor and rend your garments. Just say, I I messed up on that. I'm sorry. First of all, it's great modeling. Mm. And for an emotionally emotionally sound adult has to know how to apologize. Um, And so you're modeling that for your son. Uh, The second thing is... um, you don't have to have an immediate reply. You say, I'm, I'm a little confused right now. I'm, I'm going to think about this. You know, a man came up to me once and he said, my parents were always telling, I was always making requests of my parents, this, that, the other thing. And they said, he said, my parents, both my mother and my father always said, oh, really? Okay, well, we'll get back to you on that. He said, it wasn't when, until I was a re- or an adult, I realized my parents never got back to me. <laughs> modern parent thinks they have to have an answer have to make a decision right away and you can say we're not sure give us some time to think about that no 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 no. you know i can see a nine-year-old saying no no i have to have a decision now no son no you don't i'm sorry i we need to think about that i need to talk to your mother about that right right and and you teach them patience you teach them decision making and you probably should get back to him. <laughs> yeah, and get back to him eventually. Yeah. I, I had I had one more question that I wanted to ask you about raising sons as I'm seeing my son uh, get more comfortable with what you call rough and tumble play. So I'm seeing more. Some people would see it as aggression. I, I don't see it. Maybe it's because I've been around a lot of boys who've been his age or, or a little bit older. Uh, what would you say to those who are worried about boys who are, you know, wrestling hands-on all the time on the Does your third ground? grader wait to jump you? Does he try and ambush you? All the time. Yeah. Like, oh, well, in a playing way, like I know if I'm coming around the corner and he's gone downstairs and it's awfully quiet right away, there's a chance that he's springing out of nowhere. But other than that, like not, he's not trying to ambush me. Like he's trying to engage me in some play. Of course. Yeah. And when I it's see him a with play this- ambush, it's a play ambush, but he wants, he wants to, he wants to get a slight advantage there because you might be a bit larger. Yeah. yeah a lot larger. So, <laughs> yeah. And, and if, I had this conversation wanted, yesterday with him. I was just wanted, about it's safe. It's safe. Yeah. So, well, you went right to my point. If you want to show a boy how to be, a loving man wrestling with him is the best way Hmm. because you could crush him. Mm -hmm. You could absolutely crush him. You could humiliate him, make him cry. You could crush him, but you don't. You wrestle in a way that makes it fun for him, that creates a sense of competition and where he gets a good battle out of it. And, um, and then mom said to me, but it always ends in tears. And I said, but it's not tears of pain. Yeah. It's tears of frustration because the boy wants to take his dad down. Yeah. And his dad's too big for that. And But the mom said, but he's crying. And I said, well, you know, is he then looking to wrestle with his dad two days later? Is he, yeah. is he, it, 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 you don't need to worry about the crying if, if he's back at it. Uh, yeah. But moms think this is going to be emotionally crushing. I, I just don't believe it. I, I think it is intimate. It's physical. It's a way of expressing love. But what it's also a way of modeling self-control. Mm. 
because what you want to do is wrestle with your oldest son so that when he's nine and he's got a five-year-old younger brother whom he could crush, he doesn't do it. He wrestles with the five-year-old who's a little intemperate and out of control. But you watch that nine-year-old wrestle in a way which is an emulation of the way his father wrestled with him. And then you know, oh, I've passed self-control and patience down to my son. He's showing it to his little brother. That's powerful. That's a great observation. Great example of how we want to shape our sons into caring, loving, emotionally intuitive and strong young men. And model, 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 model. Caught, not taught. Is that what they say? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes they, 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 the little eyes are on you. They're watching you and, and they pick up on the little cues. Um, Michael, you brought so much to this conversation. I want to thank you. Um, but I have a question for you because Are we, you, end? we just started. What do you mean? We just oh. started. I know 45 minutes in, uh, you know, for you, you've done this for like 50 years. You've been, you've been working in this area, but I get the impression from you in our conversations that you're, you're a learner and you're always pushing and you're always uh, looking for another answer and looking to grow. So my question for you is for you, Michael, what is an area of growth that you're excited about right now or you're diving into? Well, I'm trying to make sense of um, the teen mental health crisis. The media is all over the teen mental health crisis. And parents are in a total panic about teen mental health. And, um, you know, I mean, give me an example. It's not a boy example, but during the pandemic, there was a 50% increase in teenage girls showing up at emergency rooms with suicidal ideation. Mm. And that the media in, in the Massachusetts, particularly the big papers in Boston, were all over that stat. And everybody assumed. So I have to say, hold on. Um, uh, uh, there's actually a drop in completed suicides. Mm in teens during the pandemic. What? We thought it was a, what? Yeah. No, uh, there were more kids talking about it, more online. Hmm. Are there more kids taking their lives? Hmm. Um, and, and how do you handle a kid who, with suicidal ideation? Um, how do you talk to a kid who says, I'm so anxious, I, I can't uh, stay in class? As a teacher, how do you handle, because you've got, um, these kind of mini therapeutic opportunities. And I'm interested in teaching teachers to handle these moments. So you want a story about a, uh, a dean told me that uh, there was a girl who was being rude and disrespectful to teachers. And she said, you got to come into my office in the morning before you start your class. And the girl stood out in the hall, shouted, I can't come in. I have a problem with authority. I was traumatized by a therapist and I can't be in an office with a person in authority. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is a pretty aggressive mental health approach on the part of a 17-year-old. And the dean walked out and said, I'm terribly sorry to hear this. Let me walk you to your car and let's start tomorrow morning in my office. And she walked the girl to her car, put her in the car and said, see you tomorrow. And you have to have ways of managing mental health moments where you don't panic where you don't retaliate, where 
you do something that is common sense. So because, Ken, my work is mainly working in schools, I'm always training teachers. And the, the challenge at this moment is how to handle a sixth grade girl who's on her phone in the middle of your class. And when you say, put your phone away, no, I'm anxious. I have to text my mother. Oh, I know. Oh, <laughs> yep. Been there? Yeah. We are there right now. Yeah, we yeah. are. We're up against that right now. So I'm trying to. I'm trying to help teachers with these kinds of challenges. That's great. There, there is help needed. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I always love to hear what areas of of focus and passion people are into. So thanks for sharing. Michael, thank you for spending time with us today. I could keep going and going uh, if we had more time, but if people want to learn more about you, your research, the 10 books that you've written and what you're working on now, where can they do that? Where can they find you? Uh, 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 MichaelThompson-PhD.com okay. um, is my website. You'll learn a lot about me there, but I'm apparently I don't, I don't look for them all, but I'm told I have 25 or 30 videos out on YouTube. Okay. So if you want to, uh, if you want to go through YouTube, I'm not a YouTuber particularly at my age, but uh, if you want to hear me give a talk on boys or on my book, Best Friends, Worst Enemies, about the social lives of children, I'm I'm on there. And some of them are pretty well produced and pretty well edited. So they're, they're not, they're not uh, terrible to watch. Amazing. Michael, I appreciate you. Uh, thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you, Cam. Thanks for having me. Take care. Keep, keep up your good work supporting dads. Thank you. Dads are important. Thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Dads Making a Difference podcast. I hope you found value in today's show. And if it made a positive impact on you, please share it with someone you know, leave a five-star review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. And if you are a father listening to this right now who is driven to build a life of significance, to truly make a difference in the life of your family, in your business, and in the community around you, go to dmdmastermind.com to learn more about the Dads Making a Difference Mastermind. A mastermind group for fathers that provides men with the skills, the connections, the accountability, the proven steps, and the brotherhood to truly become a dad making a difference. I'm Cam Hall. Thank you for spending time with me today, and I will see you on the next episode of the DMD Podcast.